0: What is a more familiar bodily phenomenon than the pulse? We are so accustomed to the sensation of our pulse that it is easy to think this was always a part of human experience. But what if this was not always the case? When did physicians learn about the pulse? And how did it become so central to medical practices and to our own experiences of our bodies? Hi and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn to Dr. Yakir Paz, who is interviewing Dr. Oli Lewis, a historian of medicine in antiquity.
1: Orly, how is it possible that people in ancient Greece did not know about the pulse?
2: Well, our pulse is only so obvious to us, since we already know about it. If you ask a young child who knows nothing about the pulse to simply rest his or her fingers upon the wrist or the neck, they would probably not feel any beats or throbbing motions, which you and I call the pulse. It is only if one knows that there is such a motion taking place that one looks for it and will usually find it. But if you don't know it's there to be found and to be felt, then you probably won't feel it either. The same holds for our heartbeat. We don't usually feel it. It is only after strenuous physical activity that we might become aware of something moving or beating in our chest. Other occasions on which we feel our heart beating are slightly less pleasant. For instance, when we are nervous or wake up from a bad dream.
1: So it's usually under particular, often unnatural circumstances that we become aware of these kinds of pulsating motions.
2: Yes, and this is exactly why for a long time, until the 3rd century BC, the pulsating or throbbing motions, which we call pause, were considered an unnatural bodily phenomenon, motions which occur only sometimes, and usually in cases of exertion or extreme emotions, or only in certain body parts, which are very painful or inflamed. How did this affect the encounter between physicians and patients back then? This meant that when physicians of the classical period, we are talking here of the 5th century and most of the 4th century BC, most prominently the authors of the Hippocratic Corpus, When those physicians observed pulsating motions in a patient's body, they considered this a sign of illness. Some physicians reported feeling fobbing or pulsing motions in the chest, in the abdomen, or even in the elbow of their patients. But these motions were considered a sign of illness simply by virtue of their existence, not because of certain changes or irregularities in them. This is different from the case of respiration or urine, where physicians were looking for deviations from a natural standard. Did you say elbow? Yes, I did say elbow. Throbbing in the elbow was considered a sign of derangement, although it was more often in the abdominal area in which physicians notice such motions. But when I say more often, this does not mean that this happened frequently. We have dozens of medical writings from the 5th and early 4th centuries, and in these there are very few references to such motions. Especially if we compare these references to the numerous mentions of the quality and changes in other phenomena in the bodies of patients. Their complexion, urine, respiration, swellings and so forth. And we have in our sources several lists of the things which physicians must observe and look for when examining a patient. And throbbing is rarely listed there. And we must remember that when physicians do mention such motions, they're not thinking of what we call pulse. They're thinking of those unnatural, incidental motions which a physician may or may not feel in a certain part of the body. Was this the common perception, or was it only
1: doctors who thought of these motions in such a way?
2: This was the common perception. We can presume that people sometimes sensed the throbbing in certain parts if they had an inflamed wound, for instance. And characters in plays and epics from archaic and classical Greece, characters such as those we encounter in Homer and in the plays of Euripides and other playwriters, they feel their heart jump or leap, as they call it, when they are frightened, very ill or emotional. We can imagine what they were experiencing in such cases. And we would say that our heart missed a beat. It was off sync from its normal rhythm. But this was not the case in Greece of that time. And we have no reference in the literary sources or in inscriptions for a notion different from the one we find in the medical sources of the time. And if anything was the symbol of physicians and of the medical profession at the time, it were the cupping glasses, which we find in graves.
1: But later it is the gesture of measuring the pulse which is associated most closely with the medical art.
2: Yes, it is. Cupping glasses were still widely used to extract corrupted blood or air from the body, as were most of the other instruments which earlier physicians had been using. But Quintilian, a Roman orator of the 1st century AD, tells us that if you want to convey without words the image of a musician, you would move your fingers as if you were plucking the strings of a lyre. And if you wanted to convey the image of a sick person, you would do so by mimicking the gesture of feeling the pulse, that is, by touching the wrist.
1: Is there any other evidence for the pulse becoming widely known in Roman times?
2: Yes, there is other evidence which shows that it was not only physicians who knew about vascular motions and how to examine them. In the first century AD, the Roman philosopher Seneca notes in a letter to a friend that physicians must touch the vessels in order to advise about the appropriate time for eating or for bathing. And we should notice here the explicit reference to the vessels. To us it is obvious that when we check our pulse we are feeling the motion of our vessels, but this was not always so obvious. The Hippocratic physicians felt similar motions at times, but often connected them with the flesh rather than vessels.
1: Was this practice exclusive for physicians, or did laypeople also know how to take the pulse?
2: They did. Plutarch, a Roman philosopher and a biographer from the 2nd century AD, remarks that it is useful and easy to know whether one's pulse is, for instance, frequent or sparse, and this without having to turn to a physician. And he uses here the particular technical terms which we find also in the medical writings to convey the frequent or sparse pulse.
1: When you say medical writings, which works or authors are you referring to?
2: I'm referring to two main collections. One is the so-called Hippocratic Corpus. This consists of over 60 treatises, mainly from the 5th and 4th centuries BC. They weren't all written by the physician Hippocrates himself, but were all ascribed to him already in antiquity. The second corpus consists of the works of Galen, who was a physician, philosopher and very prolific writer. He was born in Pergamum, in today's Turkey, during the 2nd century AD, but spent most of his time in Rome. He even served as the physician of the gladiators and later of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. Galen's works address a wide span of issues related to medical theory, medical practice, reproduction, birth and much more and his works had a great influence on medical theory and practice deep into modern times.
1: You've said that the Hippocratic Corpus was composed in the 5th and 4th century BC, and Galen wrote in the 2nd century AD. What do we know about the 6th centuries in between?
2: Many other physicians published on these and other topics during that time. Unfortunately, most of these works have been lost. But citations and reports in Galen and other writings which have reached us Give us a fair idea of the contents of these lost writings.
1: When do things change in the physician's ideas and methods?
2: As far as we can tell from our sources, things begin to change in the middle of the 4th century BC. The philosopher Aristotle talks of a natural and continuous pulsating motion of the heart and of all the vessels in the body. He says that the walls of the heart expand and contract because of a heating process connected to the motion of blood in the heart. A short time after Aristotle, another significant change in ideas concerning pulsation occurs with the physician Praxagoras of Kos, who worked and wrote during the late 4th and early 3rd centuries BC.
1: What did Praxagoras think about the pulse?
2: Praxagoras came to understand that not all the vessels connected to the heart are of the same kind and function, but that the vessels stemming from the left side of the heart, which he called arteriae, arteries, have different features from those stemming from the right side, which he called phlebes, veins. Proxagoras claimed that only the arteries pulsate and that they do so naturally and continuously. The reasons for this is that, like the heart, they have a natural innate power or faculty inside their walls, which allows them to expand and contract continuously.
1: To sum up, the pulse started as a phenomenon that was considered pathological and usually overlooked. Then, philosophers and physicians came to think of it as a natural motion in the heart and all the vessels, and later as a natural motion in the heart and of one type or system of vessels, the arteriae.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: But how did this
2: happen? How do they suddenly come upon these new ideas? It was a long process, and it combined different means of investigation and some innovative and imaginative thinking. Physicians conducted planned observations on living and dead animals, They also had the chance to observe the bodies of patients who were severely injured so that the internal parts were visible. These observations together with questions which the ancients raised in their attempts to explain the body and together with various common assumptions, all these things work together to yield new ideas and interpretations of the pulsating motions in the body.
1: So according to this new theory, there is now a constant natural pulse in the body. Does this idea have any practical implications
2: for the interaction between physicians and patients? Absolutely. It was used already by Praxagoras, who realized that if the pulse is a natural, constant motion, then changes in it may indicate changes in the body. And from the 3rd century BC onwards, we witness the growing popularity of the diagnostic methods of examining the arterial motions in patients. Physicians such as Herophilus in the 3rd century BC and Galen, 500 years later, described the pulse as the most important diagnostic indicator. Other things which physicians examined, such as complexion, excrements, respiration, were only secondary and auxiliary as far as diagnosis and prognosis were concerned. In line with this, they considered the examination of the pulse a fundamental part of the encounter with their patients, and they were in the habit of feeling and assessing the pulse of their patients and of recording the information they gained from this examination.
1: Why does examining the pulse become so
2: popular? There were two main reasons. The first reason was mostly conceptual. Namely, the belief that the pulse can reveal the hidden physical and mental condition of patients, as well as secrets they may be trying to keep from the physician. Not only their bodily states, but also their troubles and emotions as well as other things they might consider irrelevant or try to conceal. These included, for instance, eating against the doctor's instructions, the taking of particular drugs, or even sexual intercourse. The ancient physicians believed that all these things affect the pulse and hence are revealed through the pulse. And the second reason? It was accessible. Its inspection was considerably more pleasant and decent than that of the urine and other excrements and secretions which required no hustle or embarrassment on the patient's behalf. This was particularly important for women, who were less eager to be palpated and examined in parts such as the stomach and legs. For these reasons, checking the pulse became an essential part of the diagnostic procedure, and that on which physicians relied most.
1: You mentioned earlier that the gesture of taking the pulse by putting the fingers on the wrist became a kind of a symbol of illness in medical practice. This was the gesture which people used to convey the image of a sick person. Why does this gesture, which we still recognize today, become so famous?
2: Part of the answer to your question rests exactly in the gesture itself. It was more than just a flittering brush of the fingers. It involved, rather, the application of a static pressure to the wrist for a good few seconds. And the physician would probably be counting while doing this and looking concentrated. And if you think of it for a moment... The wrist is not exactly an obvious place to palpate. There is no vital organ beneath it. And unless the patient had specifically complained of some pain in that area, she or he would probably not expect to be so attentively palpated there. Did they use any particular tools when examining the pulse? Some physicians, such as Herophilus, used a water clock. There were different types of water clocks available in antiquity but the one which Herophilus would have probably used in the first century BC was a so-called inflowing water clock. How did this work? The physician or his assistant would first set up the clock. It consisted of two vessels. One vessel was filled with water and placed above an empty vessel, so that the water could flow into the bottom vessel. This bottom vessel would have different markings, which marked different age groups, infancy, childhood, adults, old age. It worked on the basis that each age group has a natural pulse frequency. In other words, that in the time it takes water to flow into the bottom vessel and reach the marking of a certain age group, healthy individuals of that age group have a particular number of beats which occur and can be felt. The physician would start feeling the pulse. Once he found the beat and could follow it properly, an assistant would release the seal from the top vessel, which contained the water so that the water started flowing down into the bottom vessel. As soon as the water started flowing, the physician would start counting the beats. Once the water reached the line marking the age group of the particular patient, the physician would stop counting the beats. And then what? This method acted as a kind of thermometer, in fact. For if the number of beats were the natural number of the age group, the physicians concluded that there was no fever. If he felt more beats than expected, there was fever. The more beats, the higher the fever. If the number of beats was lower than naturally expected, he would conclude that the patient was suffering from an illness related to an unnatural cooling.
1: This must have been quite a
2: curious sight. I expect so. And this would be one reason why the examination of the pulse was so noticeable. Our sources are particularly scanty on this, unfortunately. But if Herophilus and perhaps some of his many followers were using such a device the patients must have noticed it, and they were probably at least mildly intrigued or bemused by such a device. This clock would have required some fussing and fiddling, the two vessels had to be correctly positioned, the top vessel had to be filled, and both had to be put away at the end of the examination. And we can only speculate that some of Herophilus' more educated patients had even expressed their interest and perhaps received some explanation about the device.
1: You mentioned earlier that even without the water clock, It was hard to miss the doctor's examination of the pulse because of the particular place and manner in which the physicians took the pulse.
2: Yes, especially since some physicians came into the habit of examining the pulse immediately upon meeting the patient. It was the first thing they did. This was considered unprofessional, indecent and even clownish as one author describes it. We can understand why. Imagine sitting at home or lying in bed waiting for the doctor to arrive and then... The first thing he does when he enters is to grasp your arm and sense your pulse. Did this really happen? Yes, it did. Physicians complain in their writing that this happens often and explain why this is a sign of inexperienced and unprofessional physicians. Not only because it is morally indecent and might give all physicians and the medical profession of the whole a bad name, but it also leads to inaccurate assessments of the pulse. Why is that? because patients might be agitated and nervous at the beginning of their meeting with the physician, and this might affect their pulse. It would mean that the physician would be feeling a pulse that doesn't reflect the actual pathological condition of the patient. If the patient is not calm, his or her pulse will be changing in accordance with the fear or hope which they are feeling, and this will confuse the entire diagnostic process. The ancient physicians understood that patients feel a range of emotions in face of their visit, They might be hoping for a swift recovery, or afraid to hear a bad prognosis. And children, and women especially, might be nervous from being touched and examined by a strange man.
1: So what should a physician do first?
2: Before taking the pulse, the physician should have a friendly and relaxed chat with the patient, and calm them so that their excitement won't affect the pulse. This chat also served as an opportunity for the physician to catch his breath or to rest for a moment, And physicians were supposed to use this chat also to gain some general information about the patient and their routine.
1: But this, as you say, was the recommended method. Not everyone was as responsible or
2: professional. That's right. Besides complaint about this habit, the fact that physicians saw fit to lay down guidelines on this behavior indicates that this unprofessional conduct was rather common and this would have made the whole procedure even more noticeable and memorable to patients. And it would help explain why resting the fingers on the wrist became a gesture associated so closely with physicians and illness. We should remember also that the medical examination and the encounter between patient and physician was not as discreet and private as today. Family, household staff and even friends were often present during
1: the doctor's visit. So you didn't actually have to be sick in order to become aware of this diagnostic method, the checking of the pulse.
2: No, you didn't. You might observe it when your child, wife, slave or friend was ill and a physician came to visit. On top of this, the sickbed was not the only place where laypeople could learn about the examination and theory of the pulse.
1: Where else then? There was no internet or popular science books at the time.
2: No internet indeed, but this doesn't mean that laypeople didn't have any occasion to learn about new medical ideas and methods. In many ways the professional debates were more accessible to them than to modern laypeople. They did not necessarily have to go searching for them, nor did they need a subscription to a scientific journal. They could simply go to the gym or to the marketplace. In what sense?
1: How would the gym and marketplace expose them to contemporary medical debates?
2: Let's begin with the gymnasia, the public sport facilities. Physicians performed much of their research on the pulse at these places. They would arrive at these facilities and start checking the pulse of the athletes before and after their training in order to establish the effect of particular exercises on the pulse of men of different ages and physique. Since they recognized the individuality of the pulse, its dependence on various factors in the individual, the taking of the pulse on these occasions was accompanied by questions concerning the athlete's sleeping and eating habits, as well as their moods and general health condition. It is difficult to imagine that the people at the gymnasium would fail to notice this practice.
1: And the market?
2: The market would have been a place where one would have the opportunity to view professional contests, the Roman agon. These were public debates and performances in which artisans would compete in demonstrating their professional skills and knowledge, and physicians were among such artisans competing in the art of medicine. It was an opportunity to demonstrate familiarity with existing terminology and ideas, or to argue for new ones, in the fields of therapeutics, anatomy and much more. Physicians publicly discussed with their students the classification of the different kinds of pulse and practiced taking the pulse, all this while describing its particularities and explaining the significance of different pulses to the audience.
1: So on such occasions, laypeople could observe physicians examining the pulse and also discussing
2: the topic in detail. And in this way, the public became aware of the issue of the pulse and perhaps learned something about it and even caught one or two technical terms. This was of use to the physicians as well. One author described this as a scene where physicians would show off, in his words, their skill to lay people. Physicians were well aware of the presence of this public audience, and they made sure that the audience knew what was taking place during the debate. They often turned to the public to explain a particular point, or especially to point out a mistake of a rival physician.
1: Physicians use the theory and practice related to the pulse to impress laypeople and recruit new clientele.
2: Certainly, physicians were using the so-called art, the techne, related to the pulse to establish their authority and superiority over rival physicians and to encourage patients to distinguish the good and skilled physician from the unskilled and not very good physician. Those unskilled in the art of the pulse will not identify the patient's pulse correctly and therefore they will not reach the correct diagnosis and prognosis. But the public sphere was not the only occasion for physicians to demonstrate their authority and skill. These debates and self-marketing efforts also took place at the patient's bedside. Physicians often turned to the patients and explained to them some point or particular term. Galen often drew the attention of his patients to the role which the pulse and his own skilled sensing and interpretation of it played in his successful diagnosis and prognosis. At times, Galen delivered these diagnoses in direct opposition to another physician, while the patient was present. Galen often even lied to his patients, telling them that his prognosis was based solely on the pulse, even when this was not in fact the case. Do these marketing efforts
1: actually work?
2: It certainly seems so. In the case of Galen, for whom we have much more information, His skill regarding the pulse became widely renowned and he was sought out by patients who had heard about it. Some came to him and actually asked him on their own initiative to take their pulse. But of course, in order for such efforts to work, patients had to be highly aware of the importance of the pulse and of its practical use. If they wouldn't know anything about the pulse or its diagnostic importance, they wouldn't be impressed by the physician's skills in this regard. The fact that the pulse was something which patients themselves could feel also had a role in this, for it rendered the phenomenon more concrete and tangible to the lay patients, and easy for them to appreciate it as a true professional medical skill, rather than some magical one, and that's perhaps unreal and a sham.
1: But if the pulse is something patients can sense by themselves, why do they
2: need a physician? This was actually a problem that troubled the ancient physicians too. The physician Marcellinus, writing around the 1st or 2nd century AD, asks himself whether he knows of any layperson who has not tried to feel his own pulse. And we mentioned earlier that Plutarch claimed that it was easy to do so. In light of all this, physicians wanted to keep some cards close to their chest. So, although Galen sometimes explains to his patients some details about what he was actually sensing when taking their pulse, and what this indicates, He and other physicians are careful to restrict the limits of the patient's knowledge and to promise that the patient would still feel that he or she needs the physician to examine their pulse.
1: And how did they achieve this? How did physicians ensure that patients felt they still needed them?
2: Physicians stress time and again that even if one has the theoretical knowledge concerning different kinds of pulse, how they are supposed to feel and what they mean, one still needs long, practical training and experience in order to be able to use this knowledge in practice. It is one thing to know what a large or soft pulse is supposed to feel like, or what the pulse of a patient with liver inflammation feels like. It is another thing completely, Galen and others say, to recognize each of these in practice. The physicians stress that in order to sense the patient's pulse accurately and produce a correct prognosis accordingly... The physician must train and develop his sense of touch and ability to identify the minute characteristics and differences of the pulses. These claims were addressed first and foremost at professional rivals, but they also promised the exclusion of the keen and educated layman, who might have thought he could diagnose this himself if he simply read the medical literature and observed the physician at work. In other words, the knowledge transmitted to the patients was not intended to teach them how to use the pulse but rather to make them appreciate the physician's use of it and encourage them to spread the word about it.
1: Such issues are, of course, relevant to the patient-doctor relation and interaction even today.
2: Indeed they are. Think of physicians nowadays that want patients to understand the importance of antibiotics, but at the same time also try to prevent them from deciding on their own, based on self-diagnosis or so-called internet diagnosis, when to take such medication. But let us return to the taking of the past. This practice, which is so obvious to us today, did not always exist. Earlier physicians did not know about the past. It began over 2,000 years ago, but was motivated by theoretical assumptions, which are often very different than the ones we have today. All this makes us wonder what is still out there, or in there, as it were, for us to learn about the body and about its workings. It makes us wonder how our perception of the body might change in 50, 100, or 200 years, and what kind of diagnostic methods will physicians use in the future.
0: You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste, or a bite, of the research taking place in our society. And the kinds of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as the collaboration between the Catholic Church and the Stasi in East Germany and visual aspects of the Quran. Our thanks to Dr. Dafna Oren Magidor, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dor is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode and about additional episodes, please visit our website buberfellows.huji.ac.il That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il